Turn it up. You're listening to the Marketing Millennials Podcast. I'm Emily Ferguson. And I'm Daniel Murray. Get ready, because we're taking you on a journey with today's marketing leaders and tomorrow's top stars. Let's go! No BS, just a fun, unfiltered industry conversation with the game changers behind some of the coolest companies from around the globe. The one request we tell our guests. Stories or didn't happen. A big welcome to our marketing fam. Prepare to turn the f*** up. Hey, welcome to the 50th episode of the Marketing Millennials. Today's guest is Kaylee Moore, a freelance writer whose clients include Shopify, AT&T, and more. She also covers retail, DTC, and sustainable fashion for publications like Vogue Business, Forbes, Glossy Inc., Magazine, Entrepreneur, and Baz Company. I'm pleased to welcome Kaylee to the show. Hey, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I'm super excited for this one. I've been following you on Twitter for a while and you absolutely crush on there. So I'm excited to dive into your experience and learn a little bit more about freelancing. But I want to kick it off and get started on how did you even get into marketing? Well, I was a communications major in college, so I feel like I was kind of set on that path just from what I studied in college. Right after college, I started working for a nonprofit and was the public relations manager for them. Had a really small budget, like pretty much no budget, really. So got to do a lot of experimentation in that job for about three and a half years. And towards the end of that three and a half years, I started doing some freelance work on the side. I was doing some writing and some social media management and had an e-commerce store of my own that I was you know, working on and experimenting with. So a lot of trial and error and a lot of experimentation is, is kind of the short answer, I guess. I feel like that's like... Every marketer with the trial and error, I feel like we we never know where we're going to land or what path we're going to take. But I love that it happened through trial and error. I want to get started on also like, when did you figure out like what you were, what path you want to go, you were going to go in marketing? Like, because there's so many different ways to go. And what, what, what drew you to more of like the writing and social side of it? Yeah. So in the beginning, I was doing a lot of social media management just because I was a young millennial. And and I feel like a lot of people were looking for help with how do we do this well? And so I had a fairly successful blog of my own at the time that was one of the marketing tools I was using for my e-commerce store, which I sold like vintage inspired jewelry. I started on Etsy and I later switched to a different, slightly cheaper platform. So I think there it was a matter of utility and like, hey, I have the skills to do this. I can help you. And just a matter of like asking around. And and that was kind of where people needed help at the time. But as as things went on, I found and just kind of discovered again through trial and error that the writing was what I really enjoyed doing. I just found that it came the easiest to me and I enjoyed that type of work the most. So as my business has evolved, I mean, since I started doing this full time, almost eight years now ago now, it's just kind of evolved with my interests and where demand within the market that I I work with has gone. So now today I mostly work with e-commerce platforms and the software that integrates with those platforms. So it all kind of stemmed from that original 
e-commerce store of my own. And that's just kind of been the common theme across all of the work that I've done is pulling from that original experience and then just evolving my skill set with the time and with the technology as it's changed over the past almost decade now. That's awesome. I wanted to dive into a question that I know a lot of freelancers ask because I've seen it on social and I have some freelance friends, but like, how do you figure out like what your your worth is to clients and what to charge clients? I think it's really a matter of having a, a strong body of work and results to to talk about to really evidence that you do know what you're doing and you can produce really meaningful results. The first part of that tricky equation is figuring out what do meaningful results look like to your clients. So once you know that, you can kind of talk about things in a way that makes sense for them. Most of the time it's related to hard numbers. So indicating like return on investment for past clients, you know, performance-based results, whether that's traffic or clicks or conversions through projects that you've done. So I've been really diligent about gathering those outcomes and, and then showcasing them as a form of social proof in those conversations when people come to me. I think a lot of it is also like being in the space and and participating in conversations that are happening there. So because I have such a, a large network at this point, you know, almost eight years in, that's something I definitely talk about in conversations too, is that, you know, I have a great body of, of sources that I can pull from and get quotes for articles. And I know analysts and I know experts and I know people who are smarter than me on the topics that I write about. So I can bring those into those bring those perspectives and and experiences into the things that I write. So it's a lot of things that go into that value conversation, but I think a lot of it is just really understanding who you're working with and what they need. That's awesome. And I, on the opposite side of the equation, what should like a company look for in like a good freelancer or writer? Like what are some, like how could someone like, look at it. I know the body of work, but like, what are some qualities that you would look for if you were going to hire someone as a freelancer? Yeah. A few key things I think are, do they have a process in place? So like, do they have an established workflow? Do they know what they're doing? Can they take the lead on the project? Do they have, you know, the ability to work within your time frame? Do they follow directions? Well, um, and some of that you really can't know until you get into the actual working relationship with it, which is tricky. So that's why I always tell people to to look for referral based introductions first, right? Because the best introduction is from somebody who's basically pre vetted a freelancer for you. So referrals are where ninety five percent of my work comes from today, and it's just one of the easiest ways to to find out like who's good and to save yourself a lot of time with the screening process. So ask around if you're looking for a good freelancer, chances are somebody's going to have a good recommendation for you. That's awesome. And how do you, um, as a freelancer, like do your research on like what on those companies, since you're working with so many companies, how do you do stay niche and work with a a specific industry or how do you get to do the research and become good in the, at writing, if that makes sense. Like, cause I think like, it's kind of hard when you, I, cause I've been a consultant and you kind of have to like, if you're in different industries, you're going to have to like learn the industry. Cause it, for me, like good marketing is like knowing who you're talking to. So how do you do the research for all these different clients that you're working for? Yeah. It's a lot of just building upon the foundation of subject matter expertise that I already have within the e-commerce space. So it's something that I've been building on for eight years now. So there's a lot of, like I said, foundational ex- expertise and experience there. And 
because of that, I'm able to just kind of keep growing that knowledge base rather than starting from scratch every time I read a new piece or start a new assignment. So that's really helpful. I think a lot of it too is just being really selective about the projects that I take on. So there are a lot of people who come to me every single week who I either refer them out to somebody who's a better fit for the job, or I just say like, hey, this isn't a great fit for me. Here's why. So instead of saying yes to every opportunity that comes my way, I spend a lot of time saying no. And that's definitely not something that's always been true for my freelance business. But I feel like the more experience that I've built up and the more clear I've become on the type of work that I'm best at, the more I've become just kind of hyper-selective about the projects I take on. That's amazing. I think like at the beginning, it's hard to say no to people, but I think like Mm -hmm. knowing your worth and knowing like who you could deliver quality to is also important too. Like you can't just say yes to people if you don't think you can do the work. So it's that must be a fine balance to deal with. One question I had for you is, I know you, I think you tweeted recently, like you, you think you're doing like full time, like what is that, that chasm you cross from being like a a freelancer to like doing like, I guess it would be an agency for doing this stuff. Like, what is that chasm? Like, what is the big difference between those two? So explain to me what you mean a little bit, like versus the agency thing. What do you mean? Like freelance, like I just take on a couple clients, like I'm going to, it kind of is like an agency, but like doing it full time, meaning like I'm going to build this up. That's not just me and adding on people and. Oh, gotcha. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I, in the early days, it was a hundred percent just me. Like I was just a one person team and was doing a lot of things myself. It's just been actually in the past couple of years that I've finally done something smart and delegated a little bit. I have a couple of people who are kind of my go-to for overflow projects. I'm doing better at like outsourcing some of the research or outlining. So, I mean, my hand is still on every piece that goes out that I do. It's just a matter of working a little bit more efficiently most of the time. So that's been really helpful. But (laughs) I think I also still kind of have some control issues around doing everything myself. And, you know, that can become overwhelming quickly, especially when you're busy. So trying to be better about that this year, especially, but it's an ongoing struggle. Yeah. I have that problem too. It's like that perfection problem. Like you, you, your quality is going out the door. So you're going to have to, you feel like the need to like vet everything. So I feel feel you, I feel you for that. What makes like good marketing writing? Like what, what is good marketing writing to you since you've done this with so, so many years? I mean, there are a lot of different qualifiers that could define good marketing writing. I mean, for me, as somebody who focuses on blog content, I think anything that's evergreen that is going to hold up for a couple years after it's published is an indicator of quality. Usually those posts that I put together are super long form, very well researched, has a lot of data, a lot of contextual examples a lot of expert insights. And it also kind of connects the points between new data that's out there. It illustrates new trends, emerging themes. So it does a lot of work and it takes a lot of work to create a piece like that. So for me, when I put together a super long form piece like that, that I know is going to be valuable for you know up to sometimes 36 months after it's published, that's that's something I'm really proud of. And I can think of pieces that I wrote even five, six years ago at this point that are still 
you know, top performing blog posts for the people that I wrote them for. They rank super well, they convert super well. So there's definitely something to be said for just really taking super deep dives and generating something that's going to be useful and direct traffic for years to come. Like I said, it's not an easy thing to do, but it performs really well. Evergreen is like, because I, I think Ross Simmons says is like, create once and mm-hmm. distribute forever. So like even having like a content that you can always like remix and repurpose is always like good good because you could just fill in the blanks of new data that comes out and new stuff. But I also want to go into the side of like, what are some things that you go into the company that you take, for example, like their high, what are some material that they have internally that you turn into blog posts? What are some things that could be turned into blog posts that people already have in their company today? Yeah, I, you know, I don't find myself doing a lot of the actual repurposing, but I always encourage people to take, you know, if they have podcast transcripts or if they have YouTube content or a newsletter that performed really well, all of those can be turned into blog posts. And actually it's, I'm kind of glad you brought this up because contentremix.com is a new productized service that my husband and I are working on where we take podcast transcripts and turn them into narrative style blog posts. So rather than just show notes or like a word for word transcript, these are like the narrative style. Here are the key themes that were talked about in this episode. So it's an actual you know, scannable blog post rather than, you know, asking the reader to go through and pick out the good pieces themselves. You're doing that legwork for them and you're getting all the SEO benefits of, you know, headings and and interlinks and external links and just making it a really good shareable piece of content. So doing a little bit of the repurposing more and dipping some some toes into the water with that. And so far, so good. Yeah, I think that's a great idea because I feel like show notes you kind of get lost in like, what am I trying to get the value right. out of these? Where a blog post, I could be like, okay, here are like the 10 great points we just talked about in this podcast right now. And right. if I don't want to listen to the whole podcast, at least I have someone can go to my blog and steal, not steal, but like get inspiration from those few things we said in the podcast. Yeah. Yeah. And not everybody wants to listen, you know, some people prefer to read, some people prefer to watch a video. So it's really just kind of tailoring to your audience's consumption preferences as well. Yeah. I I think that's a great idea. I need, I, that's one thing that I've been lacking on in my podcast too. I think like, because you could do, like you just said, there's so many things you could do with a podcast where you could repurpose to a blog post, but you can repurpose it into a YouTube video. You could repurpose mm-hmm. it into. So it's like, I think like the people who learn to repurpose at scale are the ones that are going to end up winning the content game. Like you see this with a lot of the best content creators out there. They're throwing out tens of thousands of copies of content because they're just repurposing a huge piece of content. Yeah. And I mean, it makes sense too, because you've already invested in having it built out once. So why not repackage it rather than building everything from scratch every single time? It just makes a lot of sense. Yeah. I mean, also with the blog, I know you don't do much of the repurposing side, but I what a great blog post like yours that you write are could end up being like, 10 tweets, like 30, yeah, exactly. like the LinkedIn posts. Like, so when people are investing in a piece of a bit long form blog content, like 
they underestimate that they've been investing in 30 different pieces of content or more like um and that's something that they companies need to see more of it's like a blog post is not just a blog post um, right it's something that you could put on twitter it's something you could put a make a youtube video a, a podcast episode on that blog post like there's so many things you could do from that one great piece of blog post so i think like that's what a lot of people underestimate when they ask for a blog post what are some things that i would say like red flags when clients ask you for like your your services like because i think like some people just i think write blog posts because everybody else is writing blog posts instead <laughs> of writing blog posts because it's actually a part of their content strategy so what are like some things you look for like goal wise if, if this is actually going to be something that they're they're do just doing because everybody else is doing or they're doing it to actually make impact yeah, I always make sure that they have a content strategy in place. So if they don't have a content strategy yet, that's a major red flag. I never want to just be doing the throw spaghetti at the wall thing when I'm I'm creating content. I want it to be part of a larger overarching strategy where they're working towards big picture goals. If they can't fill out my writing brief template that I have, again, like that's an indicator to me that they're not really clear on who they're writing for or what the objective is. And so that makes my job a whole lot harder. So if they can't do that, I'll say, hey, you know, go talk to the strategist or, you know, have a powwow internally and and figure out what it is you're trying to do big picture because I don't want you to waste your money with me, right? Like I don't, I don't want you to be putting out blogs just for the sake of putting out blogs. I want it to be part of some sort of strategic effort here where you have benchmarks to educate on whether or not things are working or what's getting traction, there has to be some sort of method to the madness. So I think that for me is the big thing that I look for. The other thing too, is I always try to have clients self-filter by giving them a ballpark range on what my costs are. So some people just kind of want the cheap and done option, whereas I'm more of the like super in-depth, super high quality I feel like that for me is an easy filter. If somebody's like, hey, we want to charge $100 for this. What can you give us for that amount? It's like, okay, well, that's not really what I do. So yeah, a couple qualifiers. And sometimes you don't know until you get into it. <laughs> I'm trying to get better at, at figuring out who's a good match, but it's it's always an ever-evolving learning process. One thing I want to go back to that you said that I'm interested is like how, like, what do you put in like a creative brief that you send to the clients? Like what are some example questions that you make them answer before you start? Yeah. Yeah. I actually have my actual template that I use with clients available for purchase on my website, but to give you a taste of what's included there, it's kind of the things that I mentioned. So like, who's the target audience? What are their pain points? Like who are the competitors we don't want to reference? Just a lot of important detail that the writer needs to know going into the assignment to make sure that we're on the same page before we get too far in. The other thing I do too is I always provide an outline before I get into the first draft because again, it just saves us rounds and rounds of edits if we can make sure that we have the same vision in mind before I get too far. And what are some things that like people should consider like before they do freelancing? Like I think like some people think like, what are like the benefits to you? And what are some like the negatives that you you've seen yeah. while doing it? 
Well, there's a lot of freedom and flexibility if you don't overschedule yourself. So that's definitely a huge perk for people looking to kind of break away from the nine to five in-house traditional working structure. There are a lot of downsides though, too. I mean, there's a lot of risk. There's no guaranteed salary. There's fluctuation based on demand and kind of your own life. Like how much bandwidth do you have? So there is, you know, people who are uncomfortable with that uncertainty, it's it's a difficult career path for them. I think you have to kind of be willing to tolerate a certain level of risk and uncertainty. The other thing too is I think that it can be kind of isolating sometimes. So for me, I live in a fair, fairly rural area in central Illinois, and there are not a lot of people around who do similar work to what I do. So I don't really feel a strong sense of community. I'm I'm really grateful for places like Twitter and online communities where I do get a virtual version of that. But sometimes I do miss like having people to go to lunch with on a regular basis or just, you know, having people to chat with at the water cooler. I I try to use Twitter in that way. But of course, it's not quite the same thing as being face to face or, you know, having in-person coworkers. So I don't know. There's pros and cons, just like everything else. Yeah, I totally agree. I was just super interested because I think like, I think also like freelancing is a good way to test your skills. Also, like for me, like if I'm, for example, running marketing operations right now and I want to, and I know I'm better, I I could just say I'm good at writing, but I don't have the chance to do that at work. I can maybe take on one client to just start learning how to do it i mean not like a high-end client but like a simple client to like write a simple blog post for them or something and see if i if that's something i'm actually good at because i feel like a lot of marketers get stuck just doing what they're doing and they don't have the ability to branch out like that so i think for that's a, a good way to do freelancing what made you ultimately decide like you you don't want to work full-time for a company like what drew you to the the freelancing side besides like the freedom part of it yeah I think it's just a personality thing I work pretty efficiently and so I knew that if I could self-direct my own workload that I could be like the most efficient version of myself as a professional so I think it just really suits my working style and I think that I would consider myself like a procrastinator rather than a procrastinator. So I'm somebody who is just really on top of things and very organized. And so it just, it suits me. And I feel like I'm kind of a self-starter. So, you know, I do well with autonomous work and just kind of being independent. I still do collaboration, but a lot of it is, like I said, self-directed. So there's a lot of autonomy in this, in this type of work and it just works for me. And, and it's not true for everyone. Some people give it a whirl and they're like, you know, I really wish there was somebody here to like, give me indication of what's working. And, you know, I had regular teams to brainstorm with and coworkers and things like that. But for me, I just really like the independence of it all and and being able to self-direct a lot of what I'm doing on a day-to-day basis. So I think that's a question you have to ask is like, what is my work style? What's my personality? And is this going to work with this format? I think that's also a great thing to know is like being self-aware of like who you are as a person. Mm-hmm. Um, like I think that's like a lot of people, I don't think understand who they are yet um, as a person. So it's awesome that you kind of figured out like, oh, this is the path I want to go to. Because I think like 
if you do it as well as you're doing, it could be like a great career for people if you're willing to commit and know how to be structured like you are and have a plan in place and have done it before. What are some things that you use for like, what is it like social proof or like, what do you hand to clients when you, they ask you for like, Hey, could you show me like what you've done before? Like what are like some yeah. example examples on like how you set that up? Do you have like a, a website for that or how does that work? Out? So I typically ask for that type of information. Most of the clients I work with are long-term relationship folks. So we've been working together for years or months and months. And so I'm able to get that kind of data-based feedback from them where it's like, hey, how's X piece performing? How many clicks has it gotten? How many conversions has it driven? How's it ranking within the Google search rankings? Those are all things that we talk about on a regular basis because in a way I'm, I'm part of their team, right? Like we have an ongoing relationship and I'm helping them towards those big picture goals that they have set. So I'm coming in as kind of a team player and and I always want to have those data points that help me get a, some sort of indication on how the work I'm doing is performing for them. So part of that is an exit process that I have in place where I ask those questions and say like, Hey, how, how did you feel about working with me? Would you write a testimonial? And, you know, can I check in with you six months from now and get some hard numbers associated to how this is performed so far. So a lot of it is just systemizing things and and having reminders in place to ask those types of questions. Not every client is willing to to share the data points that I ask for, but the ones who do, that's really powerful as far as social proof goes. And so those are things that I put on my website, things that I talk about in those conversations where somebody's considering hiring me. I put it in proposals. There are all kinds of places you can sprinkle that that good social proof. So I think a lot of it just has to come from knowing what to ask for and then putting it in the right places. I like that you you ask pre doing something so you kind of could set the expectation up front. I think I think that's a great way to do it. I also wanted to ask you about how does like building personal brand, how did you go about that? And also like how important is that for freelancers? Because I think like a lot of people forget about like building themselves up online. Like for you, I, I see you everywhere. I know you're, I see your website, you're on Forbes, you're on, you're big on Twitter. Like how important is building your personal brand like attached to your freelance job? In my experience, it's been incredibly important. And so in the early days of freelancing full-time, I did operate as a business name. So I was I was operating under Lumen Ventures, which is the LLC that I still operate under today. But what I found was that people didn't really, it was kind of this face faceless brand, I guess. Like people didn't know who was behind Lumen and who is Lumen and what what does this company do? So about two years in, I shifted and started marketing what I'm doing with my name and my face and really just focusing on the freelance writing work. And it didn't seem like until that shift in my business that things really started taking off. And I think that the reason for that is number one, people want to hire people, right? So it's easier if you're operating with your name and face for people to be like, oh, that's Kaylee. She does blog posts for e-commerce rather than like, "Mm, that's Lumen. I'm not sure who that is. I think they offer a lot of different services, but I'm not exactly sure what they are. For me, it just, it seemed to add a lot of clarity and it also seemed to build 
my personal subject matter expertise. So the personal brand of using the name and face was wildly more successful than using the brand name. And I know that that's not true for everyone, but that's been my personal experience. Yeah. I think, I think one thing that you said that I think helps you a lot is like, you're pretty self-aware of who you are. And like a lot of people who don't know how to build a personal brand come off inauthentic when they don't know who they are and what their strengths are or like who they are as a person. So they just write how they think they should write, not like mm-hmm. write who they are. I think that, I think that's awesome though. Cause I think like people end up buying from people. It's easier to see a face than a logo at the end of the right. day. So you, I know you write for clients, but how did you make the connections with like these publishers to get published in their there's stuff like what was the path to do that? Yeah, a lot of it's been through Twitter. So just networking with people and going back and forth with with editors at different publications, not making an ask right off the bat, but building a relationship of rapport, I guess, of just like knowing each other through Twitter. And so eventually they come to know me and it's just a lot more natural to make an ask and say like, Hey, are you guys accepting pitches? Here's some of the work I've done before. Some of the places I've written, this is basically who I am and what I know. It's much easier to get a green light when there's that existing context between you and another person, rather than like trying to go through their general contact form or fill out a contributor form. It's, it's much more effective when you go the person to person route. And so Twitter, like I said, is a great tool for that. I mean, it's almost a direct line of communication with these people. So go in and like start making friends with people that you want to work with and talk to them and don't go in like trying to get something out of this other person, but like just be nice and have a conversation with them. And, and those opportunities will kind of crop up naturally down the road. Yeah. Like I said, the personal brand in you and the the networking is, I think is how I've seen a lot of freelancers and like marketers grow. It's like people underestimate like the power of like just building that rapport. And then when they, they need something, they'll come to you for like Mm -hmm. a quote or something like that. One last thing I wanted to ask you is what are, and I like to ask everybody, this is like, what are most like marketers you've seen doing wrong today? I think the thing that I still see marketers doing wrong that drives me crazy is not having a strategy in place. So whether they have VC money or they're bootstrapped, they're kind of just like throwing money at things, trying to see what works rather than coming up with a documented plan, setting some benchmarks to indicate what's working, what's not. It's just kind of ad hoc, you know, let's, let's do this and see if it works. And so for me, that's a sad and scary thing because so often it's just too unorganized to be effective. And so I always encourage the people that I work with, and most of them already have it in place, but to have some sort of documented strategy and some sort of method to the madness so that it's not just, eh, I don't know, let's kind of see if this work we're flying will work. We're, we're flying by the seat of our pants. And, you know, if it works great, if it doesn't, oh well. It's just not very strategic. It's not very systematic when it comes to spending money and and putting things out there into the world with the brand name on it. So that's the answer for me. Yeah, I, I love that. And also, I think it's funny how a lot of marketers mix up like a tactic with a strategy as well. It's like mm-hmm. just because a blog, like writing blogs, should be part of your strategy, not the strategy to grow. Right. 
paid social should not be the strategy to grow. Like it should be part of your strategy, overall strategy. Well, this has been awesome. I want to leave you a couple minutes to talk about where people could find you and how they could find that brief that you you sell online and any other thing you want to talk about. Yeah. So I spend way too much time on Twitter. My handle there is at KayleeF. My first name is really hard to spell. So you probably have to look at the show notes or something to find that. Um, My website is KayleeMoore.com. I also have a newsletter. I have a couple of newsletters, actually. I have one with writing and freelancing tips that I send out and have sent out for almost six years now. You can find that on KayleeMoore.com. And then I also have Yeah, Write Club, where I interview writers and editors at various publications from New York Times to, you know, screenwriters for Netflix. And that goes out twice a month as well. So that's yeahwriteclub.com. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for this. It's going to be awesome to get out to the world. And I appreciate your time. Yeah, thanks so much. Thank you.